The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. They simply said, well, look, for hundreds of years, liability for publications has been broad and strict. So we're just going to continue continue on with that. And it then becomes a matter for common law defences, but also for legislators to try and reform the law, which is starting to happen in some jurisdictions around the world. I'm Kunta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 30th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. Just two days ago, on September 28th, CNN announced that it was turning off access to its Facebook pages in Australia. So why would the network cut off Facebook users down under? It's not a protest of Facebook or of Australians. CNN's move was prompted by a recent ruling by the High Court of Australia in Fairfax Media and Voller, which held that media companies can be held liable for defamatory statements made by third parties in the comments on their public pages, even if they didn't know about them. That's a pretty extraordinary expansion of potential liability for organizations that run public pages with lots of engagement online. To understand the ruling and its potential impact, Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with David Rolfe, a professor at the University of Sydney Law School and an expert on media law. What exactly does Voller mean for media companies with some kind of connection to Australia? What does it mean for you if someone writes a nasty comment under your Facebook post or your tweet? Why did the court rule the way it did? And why is Australia known as the defamation capital of the world? It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 30th. Defamation Down Under. David, thank you so much for joining us. We asked you on the show to talk about a High Court of Australia decision delivered a few weeks ago that seemed to open the door for defamation actions on social media uh, quite widely. So before we dig into the details and background, I wanted to ask if you could just give us the bottom line of the court's holding in the case, Fairfax Media and Voller. So the bottom line was that the uh, media outlets here, which were the major newspaper groups, as well as a major paid TV group, were publishers of third-party comments on Facebook. Uh, so the media outlets had published articles and they were responsible for the defamatory comments that were posted by the third-party users. That's, that's the takeaway of that. And that was whether they were aware of those comments or not. The decision received a lot of attention in the U.S., I think both on the part of journalists, some publications who were alarmed by the ruling, and opponents of Facebook on the other side sort of cheering it on, thinking that it was somehow bad for Mark Zuckerberg, although we'll we'll come back to whether it actually is or not. But across the board, commentators in the U.S. at least really seem to think that the case would potentially have a huge effect on online publications. I'm curious, could you describe exactly what is new here or why media companies might be especially concerned about the decision? Decision? Well, I think it has a chilling effect on media outlets because in Australia, and I assume all around the world, Facebook in particular is a real um, site for traffic. So other sort of social media platforms, nowhere near as important in getting sort of user and reader engagement as Facebook is as a platform. And so holding media companies liable for the third-party comments for material that's posted on Facebook when that's become such a sort of central part of the business model of media outlets in this online age where, you know, print revenues and advertising revenues from print have massively sort of declined has been very significant. So I think that's the sort of central problem for 
for media outlets, it then leads into the possibility that they're going to have to increase monitoring. And it also leads to, I suppose, really difficult questions about how you manage the risk of defamation in a country like Australia, which has defamation laws which are not as protective of free speech. Um, So there are a lot of risk management strategies that I think will then have to be deployed. But they're just the the, the sort of central, I suppose, consequences for media outlets. So I think one of the things that got a lot of attention about this case is it seems remarkably broad. You know, as you said at the top, uh, the media companies were responsible or could be held liable as publishers for comments posted by third parties on Facebook posts on their own pages. And I'd sort of love to unpack or sort of test the possible scope of that decision through maybe a few hypotheticals to start with. And let's start how, with how it might be applied in Australia, because I think we'll mm. talk about jurisdictional reach in a second. So I guess a couple of questions is, based on your reading of the court's decision, is it limited to media companies like the defendants in this case, or could it apply to anyone? And does it apply only to Facebook or could it apply anywhere across the internet? So for example, if I go find one of your tweets right now and anyone listening, if you want to stay up to date on Australian media law, David is an excellent follow. Um, <laughs> and I reply to one of your tweets and say, you know, Quinta is engaging in insider trading of warfare challenge coins, um, which is obviously false. Uh, Quinta would never do I would never. No. Um, <laughs> could she sue you for defamation based on my reply tweet to your tweet? Look, possibly, but this is where, I mean, we probably need to tease out some of the particularities of the judgment because it really was only dealing with a very narrow question of of publication. So it doesn't deal with whether the comments are defamatory or any other sort of defences. So, you know, it's that very narrow question, which was determined as a separate question about publication. But in relation to your question, I mean, potentially, but the ruling is not limited to media outlets because Australian defamation law doesn't have a sort of separate set of principles for mass media and private individuals. So the principles of defamation law apply to everyone. But the way in which the High Court's judgment, I think, would apply beyond mass media, and so in the example that you give, is a lot more problematic because the essence of what the High Court says or the majority judgments in the High Court is that it's the subscription to the Facebook page, it's the posting of material to Facebook, and then encouraging or inviting engagement. And those could be, you know, entirely sort of separate steps. So for mass media outlets, it's very easy to infer that they're publishers because, you know, clearly when they're posting content to Facebook, they're encouraging or inviting, you know, third-party you know, comments, that's their business model. That's how they drive traffic and engagement. But for private individuals, that factual question, because ultimately whether you're a publisher is going to be a question of fact, is much more difficult. So, you know, if I post a tweet that's, you know, sort of benign and your response is to defame Quinter in that way, if there's no sort of logical connection between that, well, that would might raise a really difficult question about whether I've encouraged or in, invited that, in which case I think on the reading of the High Court's judgment, there might be an argument that I'm not a publisher. So part of the difficulty with the High Court's judgment is that it's very obvious how they sort of reason in relation to mass media outlets. But one of the things that we're starting to see in Australia already is how do you actually apply that to other scenarios? And so the example that you give would be that sort of the horrible sort of lawyer's response of it depends. Typical. I do love the idea of the High Court of Australia trying to muddle through which one's a benign tweet and which one's a malign tweet uh, for the sake of Australian defamation law. Um, and this could get really fun. I mean, that's kind of terrifying. Like, if you think about the scope of that, you can understand why that caused a bit of a shock. I mean, it sounds like there is an opening for people to, I mean, I could, you know, go and reply to media organizations on on Facebook and, and Twitter and potentially get them into trouble, depending on, you know, what, what I say. One of the things that, you know, is interesting then is to sort of 
tease out the geographical or, or jurisdictional reach of this decision as well. So one of the original sins of Australian laws grappling with the internet was the assertion of quite extraordinarily broad jurisdictional reach in a decision in 2002 um, called Dow Jones and Gutnick. So before we sort of think about how that might apply in this case, could you talk about how Australian law and Australian defamation law considers jurisdictional reach more generally? Well, so Australian defamation law is like a lot of countries that derive their law from England. And so a broadly sort of similar approach would be adopted in most countries like England or Canada or um, New Zealand, although there have been some legislative changes in those countries. So central to Australian defamation law is this idea of the multiple publication rule. So every separate communication of the defamatory matter gives rise to a new cause of action in defamation. And one of the consequences of that is that if the same defamatory matter is disseminated across jurisdictions or across the world, if someone reads it in a jurisdiction, then technically you have publication. So that was a principle that developed or was confirmed in the mid-19th century in a case called Duke of Brunswick and Harmer where the nobleman sent his valet to (laughs) the British Library to get a copy of a magazine which had been published uh, 17 years before And the court in that particular case found that the valet going to the library established publication because there was a communication to one other person. Um, And so that principle has been known as the rule rule in Duke of Brunswick and Harmer and has been the basis for Australian law's approach to publication. Now, obviously, in a federation like Australia, the multiple publication rule has had some interesting problems over the course of the 20th century and into the 21st century. But, of course, these problems become particularly acute with internet technologies which are not respectful of territorial boundaries. And so at a technical level, the effect of the High Court's decision almost 20 years ago in Dow Jones and Gutnick is that because publication occurs where someone receives and understands the defamatory matter, if you put something on the internet in Sydney and it's visible everywhere in the world then theoretically, so long as there's someone in every jurisdiction in the world, you can have worldwide publication and liability in every jurisdiction. Now, of course, practically, there are going to be constraints about that. But that's the approach that Australian uh, defamation law takes to publication. So if we apply that to Voller, I guess my question is, who needs to be in Australia? So to, to go back to Evelyn's hypothetical, if you tweet something and then Evelyn responds saying that I'm engaging in insider trading and Evelyn is in Australia, but I am in Washington, D.C., is that enough for a lawsuit? Or if I'm visiting Australia, um, does does that change the situation? I guess, like, you know, does it matter where you are when you write the original tweet to which the person is replying and then there's the person who is defamed in the tweet. You know, how, how worried should all our listeners scattered across the world be that people might sue them for defamation in Australian courts? Well, I mean, one of the things, <laughs> the ultimate answer to that is that if you're in the US, you don't really need to be terribly worried at all because the US won't recognise any, US courts won't recognise or enforce any judgment from an Australian court or even an English court in relation to defamation on the grounds of public policy, and I expect following the Speech Act. So that's a sort of very significant, very significant protection. From the flip side, though, with your example about wanting to be the plaintiff and to sue Evelyn. So if Evelyn was in, you know, Sydney when she sort of wrote it and you wanted to bring proceedings in Australia, then the court could exercise jurisdiction in that particular case. You'd want to enforce the judgment (laughs) in Australia. So questions of jurisdiction and enforcement become really important and become particularly important in understanding a case like Volob because there's a reason that the Australian media companies are sued and not Facebook itself because, of course, technically, or more than technically, substantively, Facebook is a publisher, but it's just very difficult to get an overseas company subject to the jurisdiction of the local court, the Australian court, and to enforce it. So one of the things that I think courts around the world are struggling with are questions of jurisdiction enforcement of which loom large in sort of understanding the implications of VOLA. So I think that's a really fascinating point and I want to pick up on it because 
as Quinta flagged in the introduction, you know, there was sort of some celebration from Facebook's critics that, oh, yeah, sock it to Mark Zuckerberg. Someone's been found guilty for defamation on Facebook. But as you say, Facebook wasn't actually a party to this case. And, um, you know, it, it, this wasn't necessarily a bad outcome for it. But I guess my question is, how far does that go? So, Given that the rule in the case that the court laid down is so broad, like the idea is that knowledge or intention is not necessary to be found to be a publisher, could Facebook potentially be encompassed within that rule? And is the only question then the, like, it could be found liable for defamation, but then there's that additional question of how could that be enforced against them, especially in light of the fact that there are actually, you know, countries are more and more requiring platforms to situate some, you know, assets or staff and things within their countries to start thinking about how to get over that enforcement issue? Yeah, look, you can really see this in defamation law in Australia because the jurisdictional sort of enforcement issues of against large media companies like Facebook and Twitter and the problems that they pose in, you know, exercising jurisdiction and enforcing judgments against those large media companies are really evident in Australia because they haven't really been <laughs> sued as publishers. And that's largely because they don't have asset or presence or significant presence or assets in the jurisdiction. So it doesn't make it attractive. And of course, one of the consequences of approaching liability for publication in that sort of strict liability way is that obviously what that encourages plaintiffs to do if they want to enforce the judgment rather than just have the warm inner glow of a judgment in their favour, is to actually identify a party with deep pockets where they could enforce the judgment. And so that's why the media companies in Vola were the target. And Facebook, without a sort of presence in Australia, wasn't. But you can contrast sort of Facebook and Twitter with Google. And so Google does have a presence in Australia and does have assets. And so one of the things that I think is really interesting is that there's a significant number of Australian cases about whether Google is liable as a publisher for search engine results, auto complaints as well as organic picture searches. Is Google liable for Google reviews that third parties post? And that's, I think, a consequence of the way in which their business is structured by having a sort of presence and therefore an amenability to the jurisdiction of the Australian courts. And so I think that's that's going to be a real challenge as we go through the rest of you know this century and work out how does the defamation law that has been really easily applicable to mass media publications how does that apply you know to you know these large technology companies and I don't think we have a sort of clear answer yet but the the jurisdiction and enforcement question I think is a really live one. So before we get more into the legal details of the case, I do think it's useful to kind of take a step back and get some of the background. Could you sketch out for us what the facts of the case are and what the allegedly defamatory statement was that was at issue here? Yeah, so this case arose out of a documentary which was broadcast on the national broadcaster on a program called Four Corners. And so Four Corners did an investigative report into the juvenile detention system in the Northern Territory. And so the Northern Territory has very significant Indigenous population and the juvenile detention system in the Northern Territory has a very high rate of um, Indigenous youths incarcerated. And so it exposed mistreatment of young offenders who are in um, juvenile detention. And one of the evocative sort of images um, was of a young man called Dylan Voller, um, who was in a detention centre called the Dondale Detention Centre. And the footage showed him in a spit hood um, in a restraining chair and he'd been placed there by officers in the detention centre. And so there was a huge outcry about this broadcast immediately after. And the then Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, set up a Royal Commission into the juvenile justice system in the Northern Territory. And so that brought Dylan Follett to public prominence. And so, of course, as occurs, you have sympathetic treatment in certain quarters of the media, and then you also have, you know, um, hostile treatment. And so here in the case and the in the publications which led up to the proceedings in the High Court, the news organisations had put on their public Facebook pages 
stories which were neutral reportage of Dylan Voller. So the stories themselves were not defamatory. They just happened to be about <laughs> Dylan Voller. And because of this being a very emotive, highly charged situation, you had a variety of sort of racist and defamatory sort of comments about Voller and just a wide range of them. For the purposes of the case, they didn't need to go into the details of that. And in fact, there hasn't yet been a determination as to whether any of the comments are in fact defamatory. But that's how this this came about. And so the interesting thing here is that Dylan Voller, seeing those comments, commences defamation proceedings against um, the media outlets without any pretrial correspondences beforehand, which is very unusual. So the very first thing that the media outlets knew was that they get served with a statement of claim, and that's how the proceedings kicked off. And so we've referenced this a few times, but I, I think it's worth underlining it. One of the really striking aspects of the ruling is that the court found that the person who who posted this material didn't have to have had any knowledge about the defamatory comments or any intention to participate in their being published. Could you talk a little bit about just how broad this is and what possible reason yeah. there could be for that? Well, so part of this was, I think, a forensic mistake on the part of or a failure to, on the part of the judge at first instance, to identify. I'm not sure whether it was a forensic mistake on the part of the parties or a failure on the part of the trial judge at first instance. But nothing was really made until you got to the final court of appeal in the High Court about the fact that the media outlets were unaware of the comments. So the way in which this got to the High Court was that they decided, the parties decided to determine the sole issue of publication as a separate question. And so the argument in the lower courts that the media outlets ran as to why they weren't a publisher was in essence different from the argument that they took to the High Court. In the High Court, they took the argument that they weren't a publisher because in order to be a publisher, you have to intend to publish and they couldn't be a publisher because at the time the third-party comments were published on their Facebook pages, they were unaware of them. And so obviously you can't intend to do something if you're unaware that you're doing it. And so the High Court uh, went back to sort of basic principles, going back to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of case law and said, well, look, there are isolated statements that intention is required for publication, but they need to be understood in context. In fact, the very clear sort of trend of the case law um, for centuries is that liability for publication is strict so that all you have to do is voluntarily participate in the dissemination of defamatory matter. And it doesn't matter what degree of participation, any degree is enough to make you a publisher. You might have a defence, but all you have to do is voluntarily participate in the dissemination of defamatory matter, and that's enough. And they pointed out that there were various defences that came about, so the defence of innocent dissemination, for example, came about because the common law recognise just how broad and strict liability for defamation is. And so what was interesting here is that faced with these new technologies, the High Court didn't say, well, look, maybe we need to have a think about whether we want to continue this line of authority, whether we think that this is actually fit for purpose or apposite. They simply said, well, look, for hundreds of years, liability for publication has been broad and strict. So we're just going to continue continue on with that. And it then becomes a matter for common law defences, but also for legislators to try and reform the law, which is starting to happen in some jurisdictions around the world. Yeah, I have to say this aspect of the decision was quite wild to me. You know, I was talking with an American lawyer about the decision and they were just so struck by how formalistic the decision mm. was. Like it just took, you know, these these hundreds and hundreds of years of defamation cases and just sort of walked through them and applied them and didn't really uh, engage with this question of like, well, hold on, you know, is there something really new here? Should we think about the policy considerations that might be involved? Um, and I think the contrast between like American legal reasoning and Australian 
legal reasoning is quite clear. Um, you know, as one of the dissents said, you know, the electronic medium of social media would not have been foreseen by the late 19th and 20th century judges who applied the basic principle of the law of torts to the law of defamation. But those basic principles should not be distorted in their application to new media. But the, the majority really did seem to have this kind of path dependence on how the precedents had had played out. I mean, do you think that's a fair characterization of, of how the, of the majority's reasoning or the majority and, and concurring judgments? Yeah, look, I think that's probably right. I mean, I think there are a number of things at play here. So one of the things that I think you find in Australia, and this is sort of something in common with, you know, the UK, Canada and New Zealand, is that defamation law is considered to be a sort of fairly weird branch of the law of torts. And, you know, one of the one of the New South Wales Court of Appeal judges here, David Ipp, famously described defamation as the Galapagos Islands division of the law of torts, that it's sort of yet to evolve and it's got its own peculiar practices and rules. And I think part of what's going on here is that unless you're a sort of specialist defamation lawyer, this is all sort of fairly forbidding and sort of weird and you sort of leave it alone and allow it to develop its own custom. So I think the particularity of defamation law, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing because I don't think it's rational and I don't think it allows for the rational development of the law, but I think that's one of the things that's at play here. I think also part of it is just a view about the capacity of common law judges to actually develop the law in response to technology. I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the Voller case, in contrast to the late 19th century cases that came up with innocent dissemination. When you look at the innocent dissemination cases of the late 19th century, where they developed this idea that, you know, booksellers or lending libraries or news agents, while they're technically publishers, they don't know what they're selling. (laughs) You know, they can't be responsible for the defamatory content. They can't be aware of it because they obviously, you know, push through a huge volume of material. And so in the last quarter of the 19th century, English judges came up with a defence of innocent dissemination. (laughs) And when you read those cases, they're very overt. You know, in one of the leading cases, Emmons and Pottle, Lord Isha, the master of the roles, basically says, well, look, it would be unjust to hold this person, you know, this subordinate distributor liable as a publisher. And if it's unjust, it can't be the law of England. You know, but that's a sort of you know, a testing of the sense of the legal principle as applied to emerging technologies and emerging patterns of the distribution of, you know, publishment matter. Yet when you come to the 21st century here, you don't have any sort of standing back and go, well, are these legal principles fit for purpose? And I mean, one of the things that I think is really sort of fascinating, and you see this a lot in common law reasoning around the world, in defamation cases, applying it to internet technologies. Obviously, the US, I think, is a is a distinct jurisdiction in this regard. But when you look at decisions in New Zealand and Hong Kong and Canada, the UK, Australia, you see this sort of, I think, very interesting inability to distinguish between the mass media age and internet technologies. So the principles of defamation law are fine for mass media technologies. So you know, the newspaper company or the radio or television broadcaster creates the content, disseminates the content, profits from the content. It's all an integrated organisation. And so there's really no difficulty there holding the, you know, the newspaper company or the radio or the television broadcaster liable. The thing, of course, about internet technologies is that they disaggregate all of those steps of content creation and dissemination and profit. It allows sort of private individuals to create and disseminate content on a scale, you know, unimaginable, as you referenced in the dissent in Voller, unimaginable in the 19th century or even before. And so courts have not really sort of grappled with the fact that the media landscape that we're trying to apply defamation law to has radically changed. And if you don't recognise that, then you can't begin to consider the implications of of that difference. And so I also think that that's another aspect of it, a failure to sort of identify that the problem that we're confronting here is different in kind. And so that might actually require a different approach to the way in which we apply those received principles. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code 
Lawfare 20. So you mentioned right at the beginning of the show the idea of chilling effects. And I want to come back to that because as an American, that jumped out at me reading about this case. So in the U.S., as listeners probably know, one of the really animating features behind our First Amendment jurisprudence is this idea of chilling effects that, you know, if liability for speech goes too far, there'll be self-censorship and that that will kind of close down public debate. And that in itself is a First Amendment concern. And in this case, that seems to be almost exactly what happened. Facebook has created the option to turn off comments to posts. Presumably some media companies will use it, which then limits the amount of public engagement with news stories. There's a a quote uh, in the New York Times in their story about the case from the editor at The Guardian Australia who told the paper, and I'm quoting here, we won't post stories about politicians, indigenous issues, court decisions, anything that we feel could get a problematic reaction from readers. That's a pretty broad swath of stories that The Guardian Australia may not be posting on Facebook anymore. So could you talk a little bit more about how or whether Australian law in general or in the context of defamation incorporates concern about chilling effects? Well, I mean, one of the important things about Australian defamation law is that because Australia is highly particular, I think it's the only Western country that doesn't, Western liberal democracy, that doesn't have a human rights protection either in its constitution or in legislation. And so even countries like the UK, Canada and New Zealand have. So concerns about freedom of speech are really still dealt with by the common law and narrowly by a constitutional implication for government or political speech. And that constitutional implication has very narrow scope of operation in relation to defamation law. And so the important difference between Australia and a lot of other countries, and particularly as against the US, is that bizarrely, one might think, in the context of defamation law, there isn't that sort of central concern about chilling effects really at all. So it's just dealt with by the imposition of liability. There's no sort of real concern. There's no sophisticated free speech jurisprudence which has a bearing on defamation law, which I think would be something that's very striking to a US audience. I mean, the interesting thing about the comments from The Guardian is that in Australia, we've already started to see chilling effects happen as recently as last week. And it's not just media outlets which have allowed their speech to be chilled. So... Last Friday, the Premier of Tasmania, a man called Peter Gutwin, put on his Facebook page that into the future there will be comments that are closed for most things unless the story is sort of fairly banal or benign. And he explicitly referenced the High Court's decision as a consequence, as the the motivation for that. So we're already starting to see not only news outlets but also public figures um, start to regulate the way in which they interact with Facebook as a response to that. So speech is already being chilled. But I think the toolkit of the principles of Australian defamation law are probably not really equipped (laughs) to deal with that because chilling effects really don't sort of figure very much in Australian defamation jurisprudence. I find that really, that example really striking because it immediately made me think of the Trump Twitter case where an appeals court ruled that it raised First Amendment questions and was unconstitutional for the president of the United States to block people from his Twitter account, which prohibited them from engaging in his uh, in the replies to his tweets, which presumably, if you extend that a little farther, means that it would at the very least raise First Amendment questions if, say, a politician were to close off comments to their page. And here on the flip side, we have a situation where Australian politics, or at least one Australian politician is closing off comments altogether because of a recent court ruling. Yeah. And look, I mean, you know, beyond that, we've now got stories that other Australian politicians are sort of reviewing that. In a way, it may actually be convenient because, you know, they won't get feedback from the general public through um, that very direct form of, you know, social media. I mean, this is just a reflection, I think, of something which to outsiders must be very unusual about Australia. So, I mean, Australia really is sort of still 
you know, dealing with freedom of speech as the common law of England did prior to them getting a Human Rights Act, which is you don't have a positive right to free speech that you can assert. Freedom of speech is really a negative liberty. So we sort of proceed on the basis to the extent that we sort of think about it in law on the basis that you're free to say whatever you like unless it's unlawful. So unless you defame someone, commit a contempt of court, breach confidence, infringe copyright, you know, all those sorts of things, then you're free to say whatever you like. But of course, as soon as you start to know something about defamation law in particular, (laughs) that freedom to say whatever you like is really quite constrained. And so Australia is very unusual, I think, in not having a sort of positive free speech right. So those sorts of issues all have to be dealt with politically. So people have to sort of agitate to actually say, oh, no, this is terrible. You should actually start opening up your comments so that we can provide feedback. But no one could assert a positive right. So, yes, it must appear very odd. I have to say, as someone, that, you know, an Australian that came to America uh, to study free speech and First Amendment, um, you know, occasionally the Americans will ask me, how similar is the law in Australia of free speech and the, the look of horror that spreads <laughs> over their face when I say, well, we actually don't have a right to free speech. Um, it's uh, it is quite something. I, we're probably giving all of our American listeners a bit of a heart attack here as they listen to this. They already think we're an autocracy because of the COVID lockdown restrictions that we're, uh, we're enduring. So... Um, um, you know, wait up where we're basically defaming Australia. I will say we do have an implied freedom to political communication. If anyone wants to sort of ask me about that, I could I'd love to tell you. We're not we're not, you know, we're not living in nineteen eighty four down under just no. yet. No, and the implied freedom jurisprudence is going in sort of interesting interesting directions, just not in not in defamation law, which is sort of really odd because when it started back in the early nineties, the first sort of when it was first recognised back in the early 90s, it immediately turned on defamation and politicians suing for defamation because in Australia, politicians love suing for defamation, which I think is another thing which would horrify US listeners. Not only do they sue, they win. So... Yeah, we'll we'll come back to that in a second. Before we do, I just want to pick up on something that Quinta raised, uh, which I think is super interesting here, about the particular affordances that Facebook has and the way that that affected the case. So the media organisations in this case had argued that they had no control over how their pages worked. You know, they, at the time, and, and as Quinta said, they, Facebook has since changed this, but the, the comment function was a standard feature that they couldn't disable, although they did have the option to use filters to moderate and block or hide comments. But the only way that that could have worked was if they just added a whole bunch of really common words to their filter. And that's obviously an imperfect and impractical way of of, of stopping comments. But the courts sort of didn't have much sympathy for that argument that, you know, that this might be a little bit Facebook's fault or the way that the platform is constructed, because it said the whole reason that you are operating these pages is to promote your commercial interests and you're trying to get engagement because that boosts your pages and that gives you ad revenue. And so there's this amazing quote which says, the media organizations attempt to portray themselves as passive and unwitting victims of Facebook's functionality has an air of unreality. Um, Having taken steps to secure the commercial benefit of the Facebook functionality, the appellants bear the legal consequences. And as someone that studies content moderation, I think that that quote has the air of unreality because nothing about these platforms is is fixed and the way that platforms themselves design their products has a huge effect. Like they don't have to amplify inflammatory, engaging material, like potentially defamatory material, but that's just a product of the way that Facebook works. So I'm curious if you think that, you know, my reading of that is correct, that, you know, what the court's level of engagement with the affordances of Facebook and whether this was specific to Facebook and, you know, we might have different facts if we talk about Twitter or Snapchat or, you know, TikTok, defamatory dances on TikTok. Like how how broad do you think that applies? Well, obviously, you know, because I teach in this area and research in this area, I do want a defamatory dance on TikTok, guys. Um, That's on my Christmas wish list. I'll see what Uh, I can do. (laughs) Yes, that's between now and Christmas. Yeah, look, I think I think the complexion of the reasoning would have been very different had Facebook actually been a party to the case. So I think that that would have changed it. So part of what you see here, I think, is dealing with the absence of um, Facebook as a party. 
the, you would then have to have had sort of expert evidence about how the algorithms of Facebook work, and that would be interesting to see how you know the judges would have grappled with that. And I'm not sure how that would necessarily have gone. But so I think that part of the reasoning there is to do with the fact that it's really directed to the parties that they have before them. And it's difficult to say how they would have dealt with Facebook had Facebook actually been a party here. I think one of the things that I think is interesting about the reasoning here about this idea that these media outlets are doing something for profit, I suppose there are two two responses that I have to that. One is that it always strikes me as very odd in Australian defamation cases that judges will sort of say, oh, well, you know, these media outlets are, you know, commercial organisations and they're doing engaging in this conduct, you know, for profit, so therefore they should bear legal responsibility. And in other areas of tort litigation, you don't sort of ever see that. I mean, the you know, the manufacturers of cars, you know, are obviously not, you know, manufacturing cars altruistically. They're obviously doing it for profit. But we don't sort of say that, they're strictly liable for, you know, any automobile accidents which occur, even though the, you know, the content, you know, particularly in relation to sort of online content, that sort of stuff can circulate beyond the way in which the publisher sort of thinks. Obviously, a car can be driven and used in any many different ways. Um, So that idea that, you know, somehow it's self-evident that because you have a commercial motive that you should be liable for what flows from that when you're a media outlet seems to be a sort of highly particular approach to media companies. And I think it sort of suggests a bit of a sniffiness about it, which I suppose is my second point. I mean, whenever I read judges sort of writing about, you know, well, media companies are in this for, you know, money, you know, judges used to be barristers and barristers are very well paid and sure, barristers do altruistic work, but quite often they make a living as self-employed business people by doing things for cash. You know, the idea that the profit motive is the most central thing here, I think is, you know, sort of really odd sort of fixation. I mean, you've started to see in UK jurisprudence under the influence of the European Court of Human Rights jurisprudence, the recognition that actually it's a good thing to have profitable media companies, particularly sort of traditional media companies, because they have a public interest. You know, they hold power to account or they can hold power to account. And so it's a very interesting sort of approach to the imposition of liability in Australia to fixate on the fact that you know, media companies earn a profit because that's what companies do. Yes, I think our American listeners will um will, will be able to understand that one. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that this gets to with, you know, courts grappling with the internet is this bigger question that regulators around the world are grappling with, which is this question of institutional competency. So, you know, which institutions have the knowledge and expertise to make decisions about how the internet should be run and regulated? And there are obvious concerns with leaving this to judges. You know, all five judges in the majority in the Vola case are above 55, with most above 63. And actually, you know, just a a quirk, I'm sure, total coincidence, the two dissenting judges were the youngest at 47 and 52. And like a fun fact was when I clerked, as they say over here, or was an associate at the the high court, judges were still using fax machines to send each other draft judgments. And they only just started using email by the end of my time there. And I mean, not giving anything away to say I'm not that old, like this is not (laughs) uh, that long ago. So I'm curious about sort of your general reflections on judicial competency in this area in Australia, you know, and, and also in the arguments in this case, how helpful were counsel in describing to judges like what a Facebook is? Like, was that an issue, do you think, in how this judgment came down? Yeah, look, I mean, on the high court front, I mean, I am aware of a high court judge who, you know, response when he was sent an email was, I don't read screens. <laughs> which is rather concerning. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, a very senior legal person has sort of said to me when we were discussing, you know, the difference between the volume of litigation against internet-based companies in Australia versus the comparatively lower level in somewhere like the UK, his principal sort of response to that is, 
maybe we use the internet more in Australia than they do in the UK. And you just go, that like <laughs> that would seem to be the least probable explanation for that. Yeah, having dealt with Australian broadband speeds, I have to say that's definitely not yeah. it. Yeah, and so having reservations about sort of technological, you know, competency might be, you know, a concern. I mean, I think here, by the time you get to the High Court, obviously, because you're starting to deal with sort of more sort of purely legal issues and less factual issues, you know, they're really sort of bound by the way in which sort of facts have been sort of, you know, led and, you know, dealt with at the lower level. And, you know, I think part of the difficulty at the trial level was that there was such a huge volume of technical material. And the first instance judgment, I think, is a bit difficult to follow. And I have a few reservations about the first instance judgment, because obviously I'm familiar with the legal issues, less so the technology. But if I found it difficult to follow, that's a problem. And I I mean, one of the things that I think is probably going to happen, and there's a law reform process underway in Australia at the moment, looking at sort of internet intermediaries in particular. And I know that you know, media companies, both traditional and sort of new media companies, are being engaged very actively in that process. I wonder... My my sort of sense is that some of these issues are probably going to be dealt with by legislation and so it will sort of outflank the common law. Now, the difficulty, of course, then is that you shift the focus from do judges understand the technology to do legislators understand the technology. And so you sort of hope that legislators and policymakers have a better handle of that. But I do think those sorts of concerns about judges and counsel sort of grappling with the technology is a sort of is a real one. I should say just to make sure that American judges get their get their fair share of criticism that there was a, a some press reporting in 2013 from uh, Justice Elena Kagan that members of the Supreme Court in her words hadn't really gotten to email. So uh, <laughs> technological incapacity is uh, is shared across English speaking judges. But I, I did want to follow up on something that you said before, David, about the use of defamation suits by politicians in Australia. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's a, a really interesting aspect of all this. Yes. Look, I mean, this is a, a project. I mean, this is part of a larger project that I want to work on about the particular use of defamation in Australia by politicians. Because even in countries like the UK and Canada and New Zealand, which we would sort of think as sort of natural comparators, there's not the same level of usage of defamation law by politicians. So just in the course of this year, the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Australia has sued the national broadcaster in the Federal Court of Australia in relation to allegations of historical rape that have been made against him. He eventually had to sort of step aside because obviously there's a real problem with the Attorney General who's responsible for the Federal Court suing in the Federal Court. We've had the Deputy Premier of New South Wales sue a YouTuber for defamation rather than just ignore it. And we've had this year a decision of the full Federal Court of Australia involving a Green Senator against a Liberal Democrat Senator, which involved testimony about what was said on the floor of the Senate, which is, you know, rather unheard of. The publications are actually sued upon were publications that were made in the media about what had occurred in the Senate, but there was a lot of evidence from senators about what they heard in the Senate. These are just three examples from this year. And one of the things that I think is really significant here is that it's politicians from all political parties who sue for defamation. So it's not just one particular party. It's not just, you know, progressive politicians or conservative politicians, politicians from all sides of politics sue for defamation. And they sue for defamation not in relation to things which are said about them in their private capacity, but quite often about things that affect them in their public life. And, you know, that's really problematic, I think, for very obvious reasons and would probably not only be problematic in the Australian context, but horrifying and scary in the United States context. And this is not a sort of recent phenomenon. This is something that goes back, I think, well into the 19th century. And 
it's, I think, really quite concerning because politicians in Australia will uh, not only sue for defamation, they will also win because it's easy to sue for defamation in Australia and the defences are much more difficult to establish. But the other thing, of course, that occurs in Australia is it's not just, you know, the actual court cases to final judgment, which are the problem, but also just the threats of suing for defamation. And so you have a lot of political disputes which are refracted through defamation law, which I think is, you know, obviously of great concern for free speech and particularly political speech, which would be a form of speech, as your listeners would be, you know, better aware than I am, which should be the most protected form of speech. And yet, in a way, in the Australian context, that's very fragile. And the implied freedom of political communication, which we've touched on, hasn't really proven to be a very effective protection. Yeah, so if our listeners didn't have a heart attack earlier when we were talking about the lack of a free speech right, they've certainly fainted now as you've gone through all those defamation actions brought by politicians. And it also, you know, you were saying then, you know, we can take it away from the courts and let legislatures uh, regulate the internet. But obviously, you know, this speaks to somewhat how legislatures feel about the internet and what it's enabled as well, um, which maybe suggests the kind of regulation that might come out of the legislative branch as well. And, you know, it's interesting because the kinds of speech that get chilled by that kind of potential liability, as you're saying, it shuts down a certain kind of debate. Like, Something that caught my eye last year was a conspiracy theorist um, was ordered to pay $875,000 for posts targeting an Australian member of parliament that accused her of being a member of a secretive pedophile network. So, you know, basically uh, like QAnon style conspiracy theory. And, you know, some listeners might be sympathetic to that defamation action succeeding. But at the same time, I'm not sure the QAnon conspiracy theorists are going to be chilled um, by this kind of defamation action as much as responsible media outlets are. And it's just, you know, the idea of you have free speech protections, even against, you know, speech that you don't necessarily like, precisely so that they're there for speech that is is important. And I'm, I'm just curious for your reflections on whether you think like this availability of defamation has affected the Australian public sphere more broadly. Like, do you think that the Australian political debate is less robust and, and lively than the American uh, political debate? Well, it's it's difficult to say because everywhere has its sort of unique political culture. And so I don't think, and, you know, you would have a sort of view about this, I'm sure, Evelyn, But there are aspects of Australian political culture which I think would be difficult to characterise other than robust. Um, And certainly some prime ministers of recent memory have had a fairly rough time of it. But I think what it does is that it makes certain politicians and certain political agendas more problematic than others. It indicates a sort of sensitivity about on the part of certain people, which is what always occurs where you sue for defamation, you're just telling the world that you're particularly sensitive about that particular aspect of your reputation, which gives intelligence to your political opponents. Look, I think it's it's difficult to assess how precisely it chills it, but I do think that it does have a chilling effect. And it also, I mean, I think it also refracts political issues through the lens of law, which is very unhelpful if, you know, you're going to have a contest of ideas in the political sphere. If you've always got that sort of in the background, that sort of threat of defamation litigation, it makes dealing with the political issues more complicated. And I think it must, you know, have the potential to inhibit. I mean, part of the other problem with ready recourse to defamation law in the political sphere, but more generally, is that it can sort of operate in a fairly arbitrary or appear to operate in a fairly arbitrary sort of way. So one of the things in Australia is that because the, you know, the person has to have the wherewithal and the sort of drive to actually sue you for defamation in the first place, it may be that people say all kinds of outlandish defamatory things, you know, for a long period of time and nothing happens to that person. But a more cautious person might venture, you know, an opinion and then find themselves at the other end of a lawsuit. And so that tends to make defamation law in Australia look like it operates in a capricious and sort of arbitrary way, which I think is a also a sort of problem. I mean, we've had some reforms recently which will make it slightly more difficult for people to sue for defamation, which I think is a good thing. 
which might sort of dampen down enthusiasm. But whatever the sort of self-perception of Australians or the external perceptions of Australians as being sort of laid-back, easygoing people, um, our sort of fairly ready recourse to defamation law, I think, belies that, at least somewhat. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. David, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu. Our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com lawfare. You'll gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast and weekly Lawfare Live events, along with other benefits. As always, thanks for listening.